Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Now from the book of Mark, chapter 8. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, so let's pray together. Holy God, uh, sometimes your word is hard. Uh, sometimes it demands more of us than we've got to give. And so we come uh, into this time trusting in your grace. Uh, we come into this time trusting that your word is always formative and transformative. And so we pray that it would be uh, convicting where we need conviction, that it would be comforting where we need comfort, and that in all things your word would uh, bear the good fruit in our lives that pleases you, strengthens us, and blesses this world. And we pray that you would bless the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they'd be acceptable in your sight. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have to confess that in my quieter moments, I, I'm, I'm just an awful lot more like Peter than I, I would like to admit. Um, in fact, I find it kind of hard to blame him for taking Jesus aside and explaining to him what a terrible idea this whole suffering and dying thing is. I, I mean, Peter has just declared his confidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus more or less admitted it. He, he's the guy they've been waiting for, the, the one who would set things right, uh, who would restore God's order, who would bring about that everlasting shalom, that deep peace where lions and lambs lie down together and every hungry belly is filled and every tear is wiped away and the nations stream to the mountain of God uh, for a party to end all parties. Oh, and he'll probably vanquish the Romans while he's at it. I mean, that's a pretty good promotional campaign right there. Now, we could really plant a church with that kind of uh, plan, Jesus. Try not to mess it up. But instead, uh, instead, Jesus insists that his messiahship will have to do with rejection and suffering and death. 
And to make matters worse, he calls everyone who's around, the disciples who bought in and the crowds who are just kind of curious around him to, and tells them that they need to be ready for the same if they want to be in on what he's about. And what's more, anyone who is ashamed to be found among the suffering with him is going to have a hard time when God finally gets the world that God wants. And somehow this has to do with setting our uh, minds on heavenly things. I confess that I, I sat for a long time trying to figure out what to do with this passage, as I'm sure I did the last time I preached it, and probably the time before, though I think I knew more when I first started preaching than I do now. I mean, what, what does it even mean that we should join Jesus in his suffering? And what kind of trouble would most of us actually have to get in to, to, uh, to be rejected and to suffer for the sake of righteousness? Now, what business do I have, a straight, white, middle-class, cisgendered man you know, living in Canada, the, the walking, talking picture of privilege? What, what right do I have talking about suffering? I don't know anything about suffering, not really. You know, the worst things that have happened to me may have been hard, but I don't even think they register on the suffering scale. Where would I even start? Why, why should I want to welcome suffering? Uh, you know, if it's anything like the answer that Peter gets, I'm not sure that I, I want it. But I wonder if this is a way in. You know, to begin with, Jesus talks most of, mostly about his own suffering. That he, as the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer seems to be a given. And certainly his call to pick up our crosses evokes that possibility for us. I think it's good to remember that there are people and communities still in the world today who actually do suffer, who give their lives for this, the, this faith of ours. People are willing to die to do what we're doing right now. Martyrdom should always be on the table for Christians. But, but Jesus' first instruction is not to seek out suffering, let alone death, but, but to deny ourselves. Right? Self-denial is the first step in cross-bearing. And self-denial may not sound any better than suffering, frankly. Uh, we live in a culture that tells us we should never deny ourselves. But I think that if we use our imaginations here, Jesus' call becomes more compelling than the empty seductions of self-obsession. And we have to start with our imaginations, right? Because to pick up our crosses is, first of all, a, a metaphor. You know, there weren't bands of Jesus followers walking around with DIY crosses on their shoulders. Uh, no, it, this is an image, right? To help us think through what life with Jesus is going to be like. So we have to let our imaginations run a little bit before it finds shape in our lives. And when I let it run in my imagination, uh, it seems to me that this is a call to, to holy mischief, to divine and risky rebellion. A crucifixion was a means by which the Roman Empire subdued any threat to the imperial will and way. Rebels and troublemakers were crucified. The peace was kept by killing anyone who would disrupt it. And, and if that's so, then to pick up a cross willingly is a commitment to refusing the way the, uh, of the current order of things, even if it costs us everything. It's to count ourselves among the rebellious. It's to risk our safety, to forgo familiarity and control for the sake of something altogether new. To pick up a cross willingly is ultimately an act of, of repentance, right? And here I wanna remember that repentance isn't mostly feeling badly about things in the past, though we may have to deal with that, but instead repentance is really mostly about a new orientation toward the future. 
It's not about just about confession. It's about conviction. It's about a new imagination for what can be. It, it, it means to, to rethink, you know, to be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, St. Paul says, so that we can be fully and freely in on what God is up to in this world. And I think this is really important, right? The call of Jesus isn't to feel badly about the messes and mistakes we've made in our lives, even if we need to make amends for those things. The call of Jesus isn't to feel badly about the messes and mistakes we've made in our lives. The call of Jesus is about the new life that he's going to make in us and the new world that he's going to make through us. And to pick up a cross willingly is to deny the idol of self-preservation. It's a wholehearted rejection of the ways and means and of systems and structures that depend on us looking out for ourselves and for our own. To pick up a cross willingly is to declare our ultimate freedom from the way things are for the sake of the way they will be when God gets the world that God wants. Now, I, I think that the way that I'm most like Peter uh, is that I tend to hear the rejection, suffering, and death part and not the resurrection part, which is right there, right? Jesus says it right out loud. There's no surprise. I hear the, the deny yourself and pick up your cross, and I miss the part where Jesus promises that that's the way to life beyond our wildest dreams. I hear the call away from safety and security, and, and I miss the part about a whole new possibility, something infinitely better. I hear the part about those who lose their lives, and I kind of stop listening because my life is pretty charmed, frankly. And so I miss the fact that losing one way of life is the only way to gain another to gain a life that's truly life. And I'm sure it's, it's part of my privilege that I might be surprised to hear that giving up what I know, what I'm comfortable with, what I like is uh, something that will actually bring about something abundantly far more. <laughs> but, but I think, I hope anyways, that it's not just my privilege. I, I think this passage, I think the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus altogether is a constant reminder that the ways and means of, uh, of God aren't ours, whatever those might be, but that they're high above ours. If we'll set our minds on heavenly things and not human ones, then we need a, a willingness to relentlessly offer up our best will and effort, our, our favorite plans, our deepest hopes for the possibility that God wants something else, something more. And I think that what makes that possible is to see in Jesus the lengths to which God will go to bring about that something else, right? It's to look at Jesus and discover with Peter that Jesus is not the way to get what we want, but the way that God is going to get what God wants, which is really the hope of this God-beloved world. It's to look at Jesus and see that God's confounding and consistent decision is downward mobility for the sake of extravagant world-renewing love. It's to look at Jesus and to see that the one who calls us is the one who goes ahead of us. Jesus goes first. He's the good shepherd who faces death's valley first. He's the one who refuses to grasp at divine power that's rightfully his and instead empties himself for love's sake. For our sake, Jesus doesn't demand something of us that he won't do first. And I think what really makes day in, day out cross-bearing possible is to know that because of that decision for self-giving, he now lives and reigns. His resurrection and ascension is the seal on the promise that his will and way is what it looks like when God gets 
the world that God wants. And, and for me, this is, this is why Easter is so important. And I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I know we're still in Lent. But our advantage over Peter is that we do know what's coming. Even as we make our way through this season of Lent, which calls us to be ruthlessly aware of the ways that we're complicit in the self-preserving and shoulder-shrugging violence of the way things are, we have the courage to face that awareness and to trade it for a cross because in the company of Jesus who was dead and is alive, who was crucified for the sake of the way things are, we know that the way things will be wins. In the company of Jesus who was dead and is alive, who descended and so is ascended, we have a hope that will not be disappointed. Or as Shane Claiborne puts it, and I've often quoted, we can dance the dance of Jesus even if they crucify us for it because we know we will rise to dance again. That's the kind of trust that Jesus is calling all of us who would follow him to. And it's the promise on which our hope is founded. And so the question remains, right? What would it look like for us to be counted among the rebellious in this world? What does holy mischief look like? I think it's a good question for us to ask, maybe especially in this time of Lent, but Jesus seems to think daily, uh, what makes us different because we're walking in the way of Jesus? Now, in one of Peter's letters written long after the, the, this kind of blundering moment that we read about today, he encourages a young church to always be ready to give an account of what gives them hope, and he says, uh, always with gentleness and reverence, which is lovely. Right? But behind that is the implication that there might be something about our lives that would incline someone to ask us why we're living differently in the world. There must be some little acts of rebellion against the way things are that would make someone pause and wonder what is wrong with us. Now, this week I had a chance to listen to a guy named Mark Scandrett, and he talked about his experience of planting a, a, a Christian community in San Francisco. Uh, he and his wife and a couple of friends were trying to start some sort of church thing that would be compelling to non-religious San Franciscans. Uh, I think that's what you call people from San Francisco. I don't actually know. <laughs> but one, one of the things that they did early on was to, to read through the Gospel of Luke, paying attention to the things that Jesus tells people to do. And then they set up a series of what he calls experiments where they actually tried to do what Jesus tells people to do. The revolutionary stuff here. <laughs> And then they went for the low-hanging fruit, right? They decided to start easy with sell your possessions and give money to the poor. I joke, of course. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the worst one uh, in a materially obsessed culture. We love our stuff. But, the, but they were here for it, and they gave themselves a bit of a break. Uh, they went with John the Baptist's instruction at the beginning of Luke's gospel that anyone who has two shirts uh, should give away one. Uh, they, they, they determined to work to sell, to give away half, or to, to sell or give away half of their stuff and give whatever proceeds they got uh, to an organization doing work that they cared about. And, and Mark figured he could talk his wife into it, maybe. And, and maybe, there was another friend he thought might be in on it. And maybe four or five people would do this crazy thing with him. Uh, and instead, over 30 people signed on uh, to take on this challenge. And I'll let you look up the rest of Mark's stories. Check them out at Mark, markgendret.com. Uh, it's in your, your sermon notes. Uh, but something stuck out to me uh, that he said that I've been thinking about. And it was this. He told us about one woman who 
uh, worked in an office of some sort or another. And she said that if she walked in on Monday morning and a colleague asked her what she did on the weekend and she said she went to church, like their eyes would glaze over, conversation done, not interested. But when she said that she and a group of her friends got together to uh, pray and figure out how they could sell or give away half of their stuff for the sake of the poor, uh, people wanted to know more about that. That was a conversation they were interested in. That was a Jesus thing they wanted to talk about because it was an act of holy mischief. It was an act of rebellion against the way things are. It was cross-bearing work. It didn't really cost them their lives, not literally, but it certainly transformed them. Now, now maybe you're not quite ready to sell half your stuff. That's fine. If you are, give me a shout, I'll pray with you. <laughs> but, but what about this? What, what about memorizing what St. Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what Paul says is rebellious in this world. What it looks like to pick up a cross, to, to be crucified to the way things are, he says. And what if we took those works of the Spirit and held them up to our lives and asked seriously and welcoming a bit of risk, because these sound like nice things, but they are risky, what it would look like to do them more and more, to grow in these things more and more? What does it mean to really let the Spirit work love in our lives in a world of selfishness, or joy in the face of cynicism, or peace when conflict is just easier, uh, patience over efficiency and hurry, kindness instead of indifference, generosity when we're told that we should hoard all we can for our own self-protection, faithfulness when fickleness is easier, gentleness where aggression reigns, self-control instead of self-indulgence. What would that look like in our, in our work, in our play, in our classrooms and checkout lines, in our church? This is everyday cross-bearing kind of stuff. And one thing that's clear, and Mark certainly says this, and I think it's obvious, we, we really do need a community to support us if we'll make uh, truly risky choices for the sake of the gospel. Now, we are not meant to do this stuff alone. Even Jesus gathered a group of folks around him. We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's stories. Everybody on this screen, I bet, has a story uh, of doing something risky for the sake of the gospel. I bet if we think really hard, we can think about it. But if you'd be into thinking about this a little more, if, you, if you'd be uh, into trying to work some of this out together, I, I wonder if you'd let me know. I, I'm kind of thinking about doing a, a book study. This is Mark Scandrett's book, uh, Practicing the Way of Jesus, Life Together in the Kingdom of Love. He's got lots of ideas. I, I, I'd love to have a crew together who would help us all take some holy risk, you know, engage in a little divine rebellion, do some experiments in cross-bearing, because that's what I think we're called to do. And I think it's what the world needs from the church. It's what the world needs from us. And so I want to, I want to finish with, with a little thread of grace that's kind of buried in this passage uh, that I think is important for those of us who care about the church, for those of us who have known Jesus' call and those of us who have stumbled through it. And that's Peter himself. It's hopeful to me that in spite of how wrong Peter manages to get things, Jesus will still build his church on the likes of him. You know, after all this, Mark, Mark after Jesus calls him Satan, <laughs> remember, uh, Mark tells us that, that Peter still gets to go up the mountain 
uh, in the very next story and see Jesus transfigured. He even tells us that when, when, when Peter bails on Jesus, as we all know that he will, that Jesus will still chase him down and forgive him and speak grace to him and commission and call him again. And you know, praise God, Peter eventually gets it. And may the same be said of us. Amen. Amen.